Hey, Hurley Burleyites, thanks for listening. Please give us a rating or a like on iTunes. Here at the Hurley Burley, we have a preoccupation about the increasingly unfair results our economy is throwing off and the growing gap between the affluent and the non-affluent and the weakening of the rights of working people in our society. Jerry Diaz is at the forefront of all of those fights, leading Unifor, Canada's largest private sector union. He was part of the NAFTA trade negotiations. He is vocal about social policy and about economic policy in Canada and is most prominently right now leading the fight against the closure of the General Motors plant in Oshawa. We're very pleased to have Jerry in the studio with us today to talk to the Hurley Burley about GM and about how to help working people in Canada. Jerry, thank you for joining the Hurley Burley this morning. Always my pleasure, my friend. We're long overdue. <laughs> it's been a while, while since we've talked. Um, let's start off just on a little bit of a personal note. Very high profile person. You're in the media a lot these days, but I doubt people know very much about you. What's your background like? Where did you come from? Where were you born? What, how did you get to this place in life? Um, my parents were born in Guyana. Back in those days, it was British Guyana. So it was easier for them to immigrate uh, to Canada than to the United States because it was a British colony. Okay. So we've lived a typical working class immigrant lifestyle. I grew up in Scarborough, Birchman and St. Clair. There was six of us in a house with one bathroom and, you know, it was a little semi and yeah. we didn't realize we didn't have anything. That's just the way it was. And my father ended up landing a job at the, the Havilland Aircraft and within time got elected a shop steward and then was on the executive board and then became president of the local union from 1967 to 1978. Mm -hmm. So I started at the Havilland in 1978 and actually became president of the same local union in, in 1987. Okay. So that's our, our background. Was it a political host like your dad for him to aspire to the union leadership? Was he a political guy or what made him want to do that? Absolutely. I mean, staunch NDP, my mother as well. My mother was incredibly vocal. I remember growing up as a child, if people showed up to our house driving a Japanese vehicle, they weren't allowed to park in the driveway. So even back in those days, it was very much about, you know, buy where you build, um, supporting Canadian manufacturing. So it, it was very, very working class, grassroots um, activism. My father and mother, for that matter, would bang on doors uh, for the NDP candidates in the area. Remember Richard Johnson back in those days was our long-term provincial uh, member of parliament. So working-class family, working-class upbringing. Right. You didn't want to go to university and get out of the get out of the plant? You wanted to follow in your dad's footsteps? Um, no. As a matter of fact, I wanted to be a phys ed teacher. Oh, yeah. So I went to Neil McNeil High School in the beaches from grade 9 to grade 12, and then I went to Wilfrid Laurier in the Guild Village because they had a great phys ed program. And then I remember I, I applied at York University, Brock University, and the University of Windsor because they had the best phys ed programs. Right. And I remember I wanted to go to the University of Windsor because I thought that had the best program. And my parents sat me down and said, have you lost your mind? We don't have any money and you don't, you don't have a job. So how the heck are you going to pay to go to Windsor? And I said, well, I'll, I'll work in the summer. I'll do this. Forget it. Go to York. So sure as heck, I went to York University about a month after I started. My father got asked to join the staff of the old UAW back in those days by Bob White. And my parents moved to Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so, so much for that. So I have to admit, I, I did not... 
I can't sit still, and I'm telling you, I don't know how long this podcast is going to be, but sitting here for 45 minutes might be difficult, but I don't <laughs> like to sit down. And in a classroom, it was just wasn't my bag, so I, I did one year at York University, and I went and worked the summer at the Havilland Aircraft and never left. And there is no De Havilland Aircraft plant anymore. When did it leave? It's still here. It's owned by Bombardier. We build the Dash 8s. Oh, okay. It was the big political football that uh, where um, Bombardier uh, just sold uh, the Downsview site to developers. Uh, they're going to be building an aerospace hub at Pearson. Um, Viking Aerospace bought the Dash 8 program, which which is, that's a subject for another day. That's a real frustration with us. Okay. But we'll see how it unfolds. But no, no, the plant's still there. Okay. You are uh, most prominent right now for uh, the battle you're engaged in with General Motors about their decision to close the plant in Oshawa. Um, Why are they wrong to do so? They've made a business decision that uh, their most effective modern plants are in Mexico and that's where they want to shift production. And why shouldn't they be allowed to do that? Well, first of all, they signed a collective agreement with us in 2016 that said there would be no closures during the life of the agreement. Mm. So their word has to mean it. It has to mean something. Why isn't that binding? Well, it is binding. So we're going to deal with it through arbitration. We're going to deal with this through a whole host of mechanisms. But the fact that we have to go through it is really what infuriates us. So here's the type of company we're dealing with, because I will say this quite emphatically. Nobody lies more than General Motors. And that's a pretty aggressive statement because – In the me, era of Donald Trump, nobody and, lies more no, than – No, 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 no. They, they, make, they make Donald Trump look like a charm school graduate. So we're in bargaining with General Motors in 2008. Everything's fine. Came to an agreement. We ratified the agreement. Two months later, they announced the closure of the truck plant. Didn't even have enough decency to raise it in bargaining. So then in 2012, we're in negotiations, and we said to GM, there's all kinds of talk about the Camaro leaving Oshawa and going to Lansing, Michigan, because there's talk about you wanting to consolidate your real real drive platform. And they said, we've heard that too. It's sheer nonsense. Never heard. Heaven only knows where these rumors come from. We signed the agreement in 2016. Within months, they announced that they were moving the Camaro to Lansing, Michigan, to consolidate the real real drive platform. 2016, we're in bargaining. They announced that they were going to build a Chevy terrain in Mexico. So we met with them. Said, what's going on? And they said, look, not a problem. The complexity of the next generation Equinox is as such that we are going to, it's going to take a lot more people to build a new Equinox than the old Equinox. And over and above that, we're going to run the previous generation for a year and a half as an overlap. So there will not be one layoff. Sure as heck, they moved a train to Mexico. They announced a layoff of over 600 of our members, and they never did the year-and-a-half overlap. In same 2016 bargaining, we almost struck them over Oshawa. We came to an agreement where they were going to extend the the Cadillac and Impala platforms. We were going to do a shuttle from the U.S. to build pickup trucks, and there wasn't going to be any closures during the life of the agreement. Now they announce that they have nothing for the plant after December of 2019. So this is the most disingenuous company I've ever dealt with, and we're not accepting their decision. A lot of people folded pretty quick. Well, let's start, let's start with that. So you are by far the most angry person about this uh, that's in uh, the public sphere. The two levels of government, uh, the provincial government in Ontario and the federal government in Ottawa, 
um, I didn't see personally a lot of difference in their reaction other than a little bit more political subtlety at the federal level. But fundamentally, they both seemed to think it was not just inevitable, but reasonable. I didn't even hear any angry rhetoric. You are the one that is talking about the disloyalty of having accepted the uh, money from the federal government to bail them out when they would have failed, right? And then turning around and screwing Canadians. You're the one that's saying that. The governments that gave them the money are not saying that. Why is that? You will have to ask them. I've, uh, I have met with the premier. I've met with the prime minister, Obviously, I had spoke to the premier before GM made the announcement, and he was as disgusted as I was. So I was floored, frankly, the next day when his first public statement was that he spoke to the head of GM Canada, and the decision is final, and they're not going to change their mind. Respectfully, the head of GM Canada has about as much power as the person that does the landscaping of their corporate headquarters <laughs> in Michigan. So he has no power. As a matter of fact, he's just fresh from Australia. So he's not a part of the decision-making process here. This was made by Mary Barra and her, and her, and her executive team. Right. So for Doug Ford to speak to somebody so low in the totem pole and accept his word as inevitable, I thought was incredibly disappointment. I mean, I said it before and I'll say it again. You know, here's a guy, he ran and got elected. If you take a look at this right-wing populism that's out there, you know, the scrappy working-class guy, which we know he's not. But ultimately, the first thing he did was he folded. And the prime minister's office came out talking about, you know, the negative impact that it'll have on the community. But frankly, I was expecting them to be a lot more aggressive uh, than they have been. So hopefully that's going to change soon. I mean, different levels of, levels of government have committed that they're going to be more aggressive. But, you know, are they going to wait until the first group of our members are laid off uh, before they say anything? This is 24,000 jobs. 24,000. This is over a billion dollars a year taken out of our Canadian economy. A billion dollars a year that could be used for schools, can be used for infrastructure spending, health care. This is a big deal. So when people say to me that they're preoccupied with bringing jobs to Ontario and jobs to Canada, well, then I would suggest you better find a way to keep the good ones you have. I was once uh, with uh, Premier Wynne on a tour of uh, Magna, and I remember, I think it was Don Walker of Magna, saying to her at the time, <clears throat> don't spend any time trying to attract a new assembly plant to Ontario because you won't get one. But do everything that you possibly can to keep the ones you have, because the more that leave, the more pressure there'll be on the auto parts industry to fall. He is absolutely correct. Um, the The closure... If, in fact, they are successful, which they're not going to be. But if they close Oshawa, first of all, there's all the suppliers that ship directly to GM and Oshawa. So some are just sold. Their they're only, they're only business case is GM and Oshawa, so they close automatically. Right. But the other side of it, you have a lot of auto parts suppliers that ship to GM and Oshawa, ship to Honda and Allison, will ship some parts to, uh, to Toyota in uh, Woodstock and Cambridge. And the problem is, is once you take out a big chunk of their work, such as GM and Oshawa, all of a sudden it drives up all of the fixed costs. Right. Um, so all of a sudden those costs have to get spread over the products, which makes them more expensive, which then establishes the framework for relocation. So it's a lot more than just the 24,000 jobs that we're talking about today. The impact can be much more severe uh, than that. So, so I don't understand why people aren't pushing harder. We went through the 08-09 recession. 
And nobody bargained more closures than I did. Nobody in the auto parts sector. It felt as if I was bargaining a closure every couple of weeks. And then when the industry changed and stabilized um, in, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, when things turned around, you know, the auto parts suppliers that survived increased, you know, jobs within their individual sites, but nobody reopened that closed. Right. They reopened in the southern United States, they reopened in Mexico. And the business case, I'm always fascinated about people say, well, Jerry, um, our wages are too high here in Canada. Well, if you take a look at the Canadian dollar today, it's sitting at about 75, uh, uh, it's about 75 cent if you look at the exchange. It costs an automaker about $20 an hour less per employee to build a car in Canada than in the United States. But we certainly can't compete with the $2 an hour that they pay their employees in Mexico. And they pay even less than that in the auto parts. So what is the, how does that, you were part of the, um, it's quite interesting, really, that you were asked to and accepted to be part of the, how am I saying this, the advisory group around the NAFTA negotiations uh, for the federal government, the renegotiation of NAFTA. You were there, you were, I think, at some negotiating tables, you were certainly being consulted regularly by the federal government on what was going on. But that's at the heart of what you're just talking about, which is your objective, in a sense, is to uh, get a standard of living for your workers that, if successful, makes those businesses uncompetitive in the modern economy, no? Oh, God, no. I mean, ultimately, it's about exploitation of Mexican workers. Uh, Coming out of the NAFTA renegotiations, we made some significant changes. Anywhere between 35 and 40% of a vehicle assembled in Mexico has to be done with wages, $16 an hour U.S. or 20 Canadian. The problem is it doesn't kick in for four years. So companies like GM are going to continue to make their business decisions, just like they did in 2014. People say... But it's rational for them, isn't it? Well... I mean, they're operating within a system in which they're incented to do that, are they not? Um, There is no question they will make more profits. But the question becomes, what do the Canadian-American governments do about it? 90% of all General Motors global profits, global profits come from Canada and the United States. Where do they announce the five closures? Canada and the United States. So, yes, it might be um, an incentive to exploit your own workers, but ultimately they should also be able to buy the cars that they build. If I take a look at the Ramos plant, for example, where they're building our Equinox and our Chevy train, it'll take an employee eight years of working on the line to buy the vehicle. And that's all of their wages. So that means they can't eat for eight years. They can't spend any of that money on housing. They can't. So if this is the economic system that is in place that somehow is going to create some global stability, now you know why the populist movement around the world is in full frenzy. People are sick and tired of uh, losing jobs and people are sick and tired of economies that are based on exploitation. So GM is going to, GM and others are going to have to make some decisions because consumers are much more educated today and are going to be much more educated as to what is going on.
So do Canadians tolerate the fact that we gave GM $11 billion? Do American consumers tolerate the fact that they gave GM $50 billion back in 2008? No, all of a sudden, when they're making $6 billion profits in the first nine months of 2018... It's not enough. It's not enough. It's about more. It's about complete greed, and I've had enough, and I'm furious. And so are the people that talk to me every day, just coming here to do this podcast. A man stepped me on the, stopped me on the street, just talked my ear off for about 10 minutes about how disgusted he was with General Motors. So these are random people walking up to me on the street that, that are just, just completely disgusted by what's going on. And I'm telling you, GM had 30% less sales in December of 2018 here in Canada than December of 2019. That was with a better market. Is that because of your campaign against them? Well, I'm sure that it's, you know, I'm sure that has a fair bit to do with it. But what we... But what, what do you want, by the way, Canadians to do? Let's summarize your campaign. I want Canadians want to, to get General Motors' attention in a very, very meaningful way. I want Canadian consumers to say, until we find a solution... We are no longer going to buy GM vehicles imported from Mexico, period. And if they do that, that will get GM's attention, and I believe that is exactly what is happening. What are the GM vehicles that are made in Mexico? Um, the Sierra, Terrain. But you have to make sure that you don't buy the ones that start with a VIN number of three because they also build those vehicles in the United States. Hmm. Um, the Equinox, we build it in Ingersoll, but they also build it in two assembly plants in Mexico. So we're talking about the Equinoxes that are built in Mexico. The Terrain, which was built in Ingersoll. Um, the Chevy Cruze, which is only going to be built now in Mexico. So those are the, the gist of the vehicles. Um, there's also vehicles, if you can imagine, that are built in China and Korea uh, that are imported to, uh, to Canada and the United States as well. So we're not really concentrating on those. The problem that we've got right now is GM investing $5 billion in Mexico to double capacity, and we're losing a heck of a lot of jobs as a result of that business decision. Right. Um, in the course of your work uh, on NAFTA with the federal government, just to take a side detour that might be a little bit of fun. What did you learn about Trump? Well, he changes his mind about as often as he changes his socks. That's, you know, it was interesting because people viewed his style of negotiating as problematic. But but we've been around the bargaining table a fair bit. So one thing about his inconsistencies, you just had to wait him out. Reacting to his whims was a was a ticket for failure. So I think the Canadian team, Christia, Steve Rahul, uh, the entire team, I think waded their way through the problems with Trump's personality quite well. Mm. So I learned that, you know, that you can't really base your decisions on what he's saying because his mind can change the next day. Right. Right. And and you never know why or what caused it? Well, I'm not convinced he does. Here lies the problem. Right. So, I mean, his message is completely inconsistent. But let me give an example of some of the, of the debates that we would have internally. The U.S. came out very early in the process and said there has to be a Buy American solution. So 50% of, of everything that is sold, or excuse me, if products are sold in the United States, it has to be 50% U.S. labor. 
And our position was, then you don't need a trade deal. It doesn't make a stitch of sense. So, you know, there was no bargaining on that behalf, and the Canadian team was very good right from the beginning. They said, we're not accepting anything. We're not even going to agree to 5% American content. Because once you go down the road of agreeing to 5%, then it's 10%, then it's 15 Once you've agreed to the principle, then the only thing that's left to negotiate is what's the amount. Right. So the Canadian team was very smart, and these are the types of discussions we would have would be about maneuvering ourselves and posturing and positioning ourselves not to make mistakes and not to open up the door when you didn't need to. So it was really about holding firm, and you have to know how proud we were. The more the Americans got frustrated, the more the Americans started to personalize it and and uh, and an insult Christian, insult the Canadian negotiating team, we knew that we had gotten their attention. I interviewed on this podcast a year ago a guy named Thomas Frank, who has uh, a American liberal who's written a very strong critique of the Democratic Party and liberalism in the United States over the last forty years or so. I call it the Republican Party, <laughs> right? And he talked about these trade deals as essentially being written by corporations that wrote the rules in order to facilitate their trade transactions around the world. Um, what were you doing there? What did the federal government want you there for? If this is all about corporations cutting up the cash, what was your role? Well, my role was obviously the the social conscience piece of all of this. I mean, the renegotiation on NAFTA was a generational opportunity. And those that say what a great deal it was aren't talking to the 500,000 Canadians that lost their jobs in the manufacturing sector. Um, so it is crystal clear that trade deals have always been about free movement of capital. So to the credit of the of the federal government, they wanted to fix it. They wanted to really fix the whole issue of the low labor standards in Mexico, the lack of free collective bargaining, uh, the yellow unions that signed protection agreements in Mexico. So there's a real recognition. Look, we closed four auto assembly plants in Canada. They closed 10 in the United States. They opened eight in Mexico, and they're opening two more in 2019. The BMW plant that's open, opening is going to pay their employees a buck twenty an hour. Yeah, but, sorry. So everybody knows what the problem is. Why are. is anybody surprised by this? Crazy Ross Perot told us this was going to I happen agree. in 1992. And he was absolutely right. So we've known this is the problem. And we've been saying this, and the labor movement has been saying this for 25 years. But fascinating, when Donald Trump stands up and he says, this is a disaster, the reason um, that he'll, he'll, during the last election, he drove through the industrial heartland of Ohio and pointed to shuttered auto plants and said, this is because of the low wages of Mexico. And he was absolutely right. Hmm. Absolutely right. So when Trump, a successful businessman, albeit a, a different sort of an individual, says it, all of a sudden, it has some credibility. But if a labor leader says that that's just us whining about trade deals because we never have liked these trade deals. So one of the key parts about the Democrats and the Republicans, and I think why people in the United States are so upset, is that, you know, when the Democrats took over the presidency, first of all, Bill Clinton's the one that signed the original NAFTA. Barack Obama said that he was going to make all these significant changes and did absolutely nothing. If I take they a look, keep campaigning against it and then and then do nothing when yeah. they're elected. But even there's 28 right to work states in the United States implemented by Republican senators. But then when a Democrat gets elected, do they repeal the legislation? Uh, no. 
And a lot of that has to do with the decline of the labor movement in the United States. The, the labor movement in the United States is single digits. So when you don't have... Well, the private sector is not much different here, is it? Well, private sector... No, no, hold on. Private sector here is about 18 19%. Overall unionization Canada is about 30%. Um, private sector in the United States is about 4.5%. Overall unionization in the United States is about 9 or 10%. Right. So your entire time in this business, the entire time you've been a leader in the union movement, since 87? Yep, I first got elected in 1978 as a shop steward at the Avalon Aircraft. There you go. <laughs> you've been fighting a defensive action the entire your entire career, which is to prevent the... A slide in unionization and to prevent the slide in the rights of workers um, and labor. Um, h- how do you stop playing defense and start playing offense? How do we start to roll this back and get more rights for workers, not just stop the diminution of rights for workers? So, you know, it's an interesting question because Unifor was created for that exact reason. Unifor was created five and a half years ago, bringing together the Canadian Auto Workers Union and the Communication, Energy, and Paper Workers Union. And it was built because of the decline of influence of the labor movement in sheer numbers. So we created this mega union to say, hey, hold on here. And I think it's fair to say, if you take a look at our actions over the last five and a half years, uh, we have come a long way. We've had major, major disputes in the countries over scabs in the workplace. Huge strike in Goderich where we, frankly, kicked the scabs out of the workplace, defied all the legislation. Same thing in Thunder Bay. We just resolved a major dispute in Gander where they brought in scabs. We fixed that issue. And now, of course, we have a fight with General Motors. And we're not rolling over. We're fighting. When Unifor was created five and a half years ago, Tim Hudak was leading in the polls uh, prior to the last two provincial elections, leading in the polls talking about right to work in Ontario. And I think it's fair to say that our organization spent millions and mobilized and ended up supporting politics. I will say we played a role in ensuring that Hudak didn't get elected. Kathleen, of course, got uh, was elected. Yeah. So, and then you took a, take a look. We had Christy Clark in BC. She lost. You had, I can start to walk through the changes. Rachel Notley, for the first time, an NDP got, uh, NDP got elected in Alberta, first time. And I think the Conservatives had a majority there since 1972. So there was a change. If you take a look at Christy Clark falling, you take a look at Prentice falling, you take a look at Hudak falling, you take a look at Stephen Harper lost, Justin Trudeau got elected. So we really did shift from the potential of even farther falling into a deeper right nation. So I think our union played a role in a lot of that. You know, am I taking credit? Of course not. But we played a role. So now you've got, shows you how fickle politics can be. Because Doug Ford just got elected with uh, Kathleen's... And eliminated Bill 148. First thing that happened was the elimination of 148. So, Which was for people that don't follow the numbers of legislation in Ontario. You got it. A piece of legislation that uh, significantly enhanced uh, employee rights uh, in precarious work, in shift work, um, uh, enhanced the minimum wage to $15, etc. Uh, all that was uh, eliminated by Ford. But... You are, let's talk about this for a second, because you probably want to speak to this. 
Historically, people have who criticize unions have criticized unions for being involved in politics and saying they shouldn't be involved in politics and why are union dues being used to go to support politics. And quite frequently, journalists in this country complain when Unifor takes a partisan position in politics because uh, the media guild, I guess, is part of part of Unifor and journalists feel that they are compromised somehow by your position. Why do you think Unifor should be involved in partisan politics? Uh, that's great. I'll, I'll get out of politics the second the corporations get out of it. Right. Okay, so if we're going to talk about this Puritan world where, you know, it's sunshine and rainbows, that's great. The simple reality is politics affects every aspect of your life. Political decisions mean everything. And you just use as an example, Doug Ford's cancelling a Bill 148, which is going to have a negative impact on working class people. So politics plays an integral role in our everyday life. And so the labor movement is about people. Our, our, our organization represents 320,000 workers from coast to coast to coast. And collective bargaining and politics go hand in hand. So when people say we shouldn't be involved in politics, I think it's a pretty naive approach. Number two, the journalists is quite interesting. Because this whole argument that somehow because journalists belong to um, Unifor and we are very aggressive politically, that somehow it's going to taint them. Give me a break. Like, I represent the workers at uh, the uh, Post Media. Do you think Andrew Coyne is all of a sudden becoming a raging socialist? Of course not. I could start to walk through the lists of the of the journalists that write for the for the Sun Media, that write for Post Media. I can start to name them who I know and I know how much we enjoy to argue politics. So I know that them changing their political leanings based on belonging to Unifor, I know the chances of that are zero. Hmm. And the other side of it is one thing about Unifor, we stand for journalistic integrity, and it really is about free speech. And belonging to a democracy doesn't mean that we're always going to agree. As a matter of fact, we're frequently going to disagree, and that's okay. Look, do I, do I have to accept the Ontario voters' choice for Doug Ford? The answer is yes. Do I have to like it? No. Right. But I have to respect it because I do believe in, in democracy, and that means that my choice of candidates – they don't always win, but I accept that mm. because that's what belonging to a, a democracy looks like. So at the core of what you've been fighting your time in the labor movement, uh, you've been fighting the symptoms, in my view, of a political and economic system that has for 40 or 50 years systematically been uh, degrading the value of labor Mm-hmm. Um, at the expense of capital. And that's not looking like it's going to change. Um, how do you, without significant political change, how do you take a problem like growing income inequality that is part and parcel with what you're dealing with? What do we need to do outside of the labor movement? What do we need to do in public policy terms to make this a more fair economy for people? Well, I think we started to talk about it and have been having this debate about a $15 minimum wage for starters. It's not a question of people not being able to afford it. It's a question of people just not wanting to do it. I listened. 
I listen to major employers say, yes, I can afford to pay more, but I choose not to. So it really becomes a question of, of, of public policy about what is a living wage and what's fair. So there's a political solution to this, to this as well. But also, that's one of the primary roles of unions is to be the counter voice, a voice in the workplaces that creates an element of fairness. Uh, we've had, uh, like I've talked about some major disputes we've had. Yeah. But we're a union right now with over 3,000 collective agreements, don't have one strike going on, not one. So it's we understand how to settle. We know how to negotiate, but we also know how to dance. So the labor movement is the counterbalance. And so when people criticize the labor movement, it's generally those people that like the status quo and are quite comfortable uh, with the economic structure that's in place. You don't hear a lot of corporate people. Uh, or a lot of non-union employers talking about the virtues of the trade union movement. You know, somehow we're the evil. And if you listen to the reason that I strenuously oppose the conservative uh, party, whether or not it's federally or provincially, take a look at Stephen Harper. The labor movement was his red meat that he would feed to his base. Whenever his base started to make noise, on whether or not it was capital punishment or the women's right to choose. You know, when he had that far-right faction of his party starting to make some noise, he had he would uh, introduce legislation uh, to slap the labor movement. Um, Doug Ford, 148, starts talking about student unions, starts talking. So, you know, the labor movement seems to be a popular whipping boy for, for, for politicians, Tend, I will argue in many circumstances to divert from what it is that they should be doing and they're not. Hmm. I, I presume that most people now, most millennials growing up in this gig economy where they're on contract or they've mm-hmm. got a couple of jobs or they're etc. don't even have any idea how a union could be relevant to them. What is the future of the union movement in that economy? Now, first of all, it's going to change. I, I listen to the debates and I, I'll have people try to explain to me that, you know what, that's what young people really want. <laughs> yes, oh, yes. Young people really like this. Insecurity, yes, that's yeah, what yeah, they most they, want. Yeah, yeah. Young people don't like real jobs and full-time jobs and pensions and stuff. Like, what a nonsense argument. You know, like, I want to raise a family. I want a job. I want to know what's there tomorrow. I don't want somebody to arbitrarily cut my hours. I don't like the idea that I have to have two, three jobs in order to make ends meet without even having a clue what my shifts are going to look like. So when people try to explain that to me, I really do look at them like they have two heads. I really do look at it as if, A, are you really that out of touch with what's going on out there? So young people, young people aren't going to take the crap. And I think young people are looking for leadership. And that's why the politicians are that they get in trouble. And I will argue that's why, to a, to a certain extent, somebody like Trump, you know, has a following because people will look at him as lacking polish but speaking in simple terms, even though he's disingenuous in what he says, people will listen to him as the scrapper, the person that calls it the way he sees it, the person that's not afraid to take on the elite within the Republican Party. But, you know, but ultimately talk is cheap. The actions are, you know, actions <laughs> speak differently. So, but people today are looking for leadership. Same with young people. Young people have been left behind. Um, and that's why there's a, a large debate today going on about globalization, 
the rise of populism. Um, it really is about people challenging the status quo and a straight recognition that globalization has really not been about working class people. So um, people today are looking for answers and I believe will fight in order to get them. It's interesting that it would come out of the states, but now there's uh, suddenly, uh, because of some of these young Congress people in the states, this argument yep. about raising the top marginal rate uh, back up to 70% or something like that, like it was, like it was in the 60s and 70s yep. before the neoliberal revolution took place in the in the 1980s. How do you feel about that? No, it's about time. Like people for the longest time, I think, always questioned the concept of globalization um, but they felt useless to do anything about it. And it was presented to us as inevitable. Presented to us as inevitable and you can't stop the freight train. That's just the way it is. And now it's crystal clear to so many people that, you know what, all of the promises that we were made about the Industrial Revolution and how it was going to create jobs and it was going to stabilize things, I think people realize today it's just sheer crap. It's about, you know, moving good-paying jobs to nations where we can exploit people. So it never was really about equality. It was never about equalization. It was about sheer wealth. Mm -hmm. And so people today are sitting back and say, how many, like, really? You're going to try to convince me of that again? Again? So there's a real shift today, I will argue, in mindsets. And people today are not accepting it as inevitable anymore or that's just the way it is. So young people, working class people are starting to challenge the system. And something's going to have to give. Something's going to have to give in a serious way or there's going to be wholesale economic turmoil because working class people will rebel. Well, you know, young people, the polls indicate that young people in the Western world no longer reflexively support capitalism as the optimal economic system because the capitalism they've known is lousy. The jobs and own opportunities are providing them are lousy. So, I mean, I, I, you, there's no way, in my view, that you can look at the situation that's going on and not say that enlightened, enlightened advocates of capitalism would be looking for reform before the whole thing uh, goes down the to- goes down the toilet. This is a, you know, to the extent that Franklin Roosevelt saved capitalism from itself, we need another one. Yep. Take a look at what's going on today in Mexico. There are auto parts plants wildcatting on the streets. Ford, GM, Chrysler, the major OEMs are shut down right now because the workers in the auto parts sector have said, okay, we had enough. We've got a change in government. We want to get rid of the yellow unions. We want to get rid of the protection agreements. We want to be able to live. And so the workers are taking it in their own hands right now in Mexico. And I am so supportive of of their fight because... This is a fight that they have been staging for years. The problem is, is there's been a successionship of succession of, of of corrupt governments in Mexico. Labor leaders are murdered. People in progressive civil society are murdered. So that's how they deal with that type of political intervention from from the labor movement. So somebody like myself would be on the endangered species list. There's no question, but. Back to your initial point about unionization and young people. Young people are realizing today that they are stronger as a part of a collective, that this whole notion of the American dream that we can all be multimillionaires someday, I think working class people are sitting back and saying, well, that was a great dream, but there's not a lot of reality to it. So I think you should go into politics. 
I don't think there's a chance of that. I, I, I believe that's probably true, but I think you should go into politics. But let's pretend you were the leader of uh, a party in the next provincial election. How would you run against Ford? I would talk about working class issues. I would work, talk about jobs. I would talk about fighting to keep the jobs we have. Here's the interesting piece. Because of the work I do, I understand more than most what it takes to invest business. I know the CEOs of all the major corporations in this country. I know the heads of the major corporations in the U.S. and globally. Right. So I think I have a pretty good understanding about how to attract uh, more work. But I'll tell you, I also understand the importance of working class people making a decent wage because when a person makes a decent wage, they reinvest in the economy. Yeah. People who are making $14 an hour are finding it difficult to survive. Uh, they're not investing, um, uh, you know, they're, they're hardly investing in stocks and bonds and, and uh, they're, they're, they're spending money on the bare necessities. They'll never own a home. Which is a problem. So it's about working class issue. It'll be about working class politics, and it's about being straight. Jerry, straight to the point, my friend. Thank you for coming on the show today. I know you got to rush off. You got a plane to catch, or we'd continue talking. And maybe you'll come back on sometime, and we'll do it again. But you're smart, and you're courageous, and you're fighting for the right causes. So long may you fight. Thanks for coming on. Coming from you, I take it as a compliment. Okay. Thank you, my friend. Right. Keep well. As you can tell, Jerry Diaz is no shrinking violet. GM will certainly have its hands full with him. Keep coming back to the Hurley Burley for more outspoken, forthright people who are looking to make change in our society. Thanks for listening. Wild, wild, wild.